It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. That is perhaps one of the most famous opening lines to any work of fiction ever, A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. Why do I bring this up? First off, I'd like to welcome you to the 100th episode of this podcast, Conspiracy Clearinghouse, and the last episode for the year 2023. So, as a bit of a treat, I am speaking today with another Derek. I'm Derek, Derek DeWitt, and he's Derek, Derek Arnold. And so, one might be tempted to call this episode A Tale of Two Dereks. Derek Arnold is not the puppeteer who has worked on various Star Wars movies, but a communications professor. He has degrees from both LaSalle and Purdue. His areas of interest include interpersonal communications, communication theories, communication law, public speaking, persuasion, rhetoric, crisis management, and conspiracy theories. He is now a senior instructor at Villanova University in Pennsylvania, where he teaches a course called Rhetoric of conspiracy theories. This just seemed like a perfect conversation to have for our 100th episode. Thank you for talking to me today, Mr. Arnold. Thank you very much, Derek. And uh, of course, this is not a conspiracy that we have two Derek's here on your 100th episode. So it's just coincidence, I swear. <laughs> uh, I'd like to thank uh, Professor Arnold for talking to me today. And of course, everybody out there for listening to this episode of Conspiracy Clearinghouse and supporting us. Uh, all this time and into the future. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast. You can review us wherever you listen to it. And of course on IMDB as well. And if you like what we do, you can donate via our Buy Me A Coffee page. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in The Clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Mr. Arnold, or Derek, if you prefer, you mentioned to me when we were communicating before this that you first kind of, you first kind of got into the world of conspiracy theory right around 2012, when all of that end of the world because the Mayan calendar ran out, stuff started uh, hitting the media. Yeah, it was interesting that I've always loved a good story. I think as we all do, even if it's not really true. I guess it only takes one time for all these end of the world predictions to become true. There are different reasons, I think, why people were worried, you know, that maybe this was the time. And I think when you look at all the other previous attempts to try to explain away, here's the end of the world and all that stuff, that people would have a 
a feeling that look at the world around us. Of course, this would make sense that the end of the world is coming. Look how horrible things are. But you can go back, you know, every 20, 25 years and have people who would say the same exact thing. Again, people like those stories. And what's like maybe the biggest story of all, but the end of the world. And so I always thought that that was interesting to follow. And then obviously when 2012 came and went and, you know, there wasn't all that much, you know, the, to, to brag about with it. But at the same time, we moved forward. Then I started focusing a little bit more on the idea of the stories themselves and what is it uh, in some cases, even going back to, you know, hundreds of years ago when you would have tribes of folks and people, you know, would give their their most secret or powerful stories to somebody who was like kind of the historian of a tribe, you know, and they would be the one who just remembered all these things. And that was their job. And to me, I always thought there's some power in that. And the idea of those stories, I think, really kind of uh, traveled on. And and to me, then, you know, the idea of conspiracies and stories that weren't perhaps true, but there was enough in them to warn us that perhaps we we need to pay attention to. And there was certain events or certain people or certain enemies, that kind of stuff. And that's kind of where it started. And it was something that was honestly quite addictive. I mean, I think looking at all these stories and in the, in the inside paths of power and intrigue and drama that goes along with all this stuff. Um, and I've been following it ever since intently. And it's one of those things I, I kid my classes, you know, it's the gift that keeps on giving because every week there's always a new conspiracy theory around the corner. You know, it's funny, as you were talking, it, it, it kind of popped in my head that a lot of conspiracy theories and conspiracy narratives are future oriented. They are very much about this is what's happening for this nefarious new world order or whatever it is, you know, Satan, Satan rules the earth uh, future that's going to happen. And it makes me think of something I read once about uh, the literary genre of science fiction. Science fiction is set in the future, but it's always about the present. So it's interesting to see when these conspiracy theories either are formed or when they become sort of popularized, maybe gives us some insight into that specific zeitgeist. One of the things that I always found kind of interesting when I was kind of first doing this was to note that many conspiracy theories actually kind of have a deadline to them. If we don't wake up sheeple and pay attention to what is going on and make the steps to take care of the enemy to resolve this in some way, shape or form, that we're going to be the the worst for wear for, for doing that. And so, you know, these are future driven, but the shelf life is pretty quick because I know there's a lot of different groups that would say, oh, the end of the world is coming in such and such day. It wouldn't happen. And then they recycle it somehow. They say, oh, we got the, you know, the, the actual day wrong because it, we forgot every other day with the Y in it. And it's a, you know, month with a J or whatever. And we just got the wrong one. So it's July, it's going to happen. And so they would recycle things. But it was still something where there was a almost like a, a drama and a story where you had to have this kind of crisis that was either resolved or something happened, you know, in a way that this deadline was kind of taken care of. And I always thought that that was interesting that we allow the timing of a story to, I think, almost naturally bring us into the conspiracy theory itself. Yeah, I think that that's true. A lot of people who uh, are or were of the conspiracy mindset uh, often talk about, you know, and then one day it's almost like it's just kind of a perfect storm for whatever reason, uh, a particular narrative sort of 
got hold of them and then they went boing. People who believe in a conspiracy theory almost always believe in at least a couple of others, if not lots of them. It's like it's not enough to say the CIA killed John F. Kennedy and that's it. That's where I stop. I don't believe in Bigfoot. I don't believe in psychic powers. I don't believe in, you know, uh, Nordic aliens. If you believe one, you tend now to believe lots of them. Absolutely. I think it's uh, at some point there's an inherent distrust of whether it's government, society. One of the words I was using with my class is this word called a, it's and I've always pronounced it wrong until I found out just the other week. It's 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 enemy. It's uh, I guess it comes from the French and it's just this kind of general distress that things have worn you down. Studies show like you you know the people that have a high level of this would not want to bring kids into this world. They have a hard time just trying to make ends meet because they're almost thinking, why am I? you know, busting my butt because I'm I'm having such a hard time making these things connect and they're just going to get me anyhow. And then whoever they is, you know, will, will depend. But that's that's part of it. Yeah. It's just that general distress and inherent distrust. If you buy into one, the odds are 60 to 70 percent that you're going to agree to at least another one. And it's just already set because of that general kind of structure of you see things around you that you you are powerless. They have power again, whoever they are and that they are going to wear you down. And so why why resist, you know, to some extent? But I think it's interesting that that's where the mind goes. Instead of, oh, I'm frustrated and I'm not being as quote-unquote successful as I'd like to be and it's really difficult for me to survive. So instead of questioning the system that I'm trying to squeeze myself into and make myself conform to instead of thinking, Hey, wait a minute, maybe this system is crap. Maybe this is not how one should measure success. Maybe there are better ways to do that. And then thinking, okay. And so maybe are there other sociopolitical philosophies out there that maybe I can, I can adhere to and, or I, or I can incorporate into my own life and my own thinking to find a way to, to live a, a more satisfying life. Instead of that, no, no, it's, it's you know, subterranean, uh, transdimensional, pedophile, cannibal aliens from Orion. Right. And so if you do have that kind of an alternative story to what has been already kind of, a, you know, proclaimed to be the official word on uh, the JFK assassination, 9-11, things like that, then you, you want to hear that because you'd like to almost root for, they're not necessarily the little guy, but at the same time, there's at least another group of people that are trying to fight that system and you almost want to join that in a way so you you at least give the those alternative stories the conspiracy theories a little bit more space in your mind because you if you're right and i'm kind of on the inside with this information knowing this that makes me kind of powerful and so that's uh something i think people maybe we all you know i think at some point wish that so i think that's part of the the dynamic that goes on in your head like you said Um, I've often uh, said that the assassination of John F. Kennedy in 1963 is sort of, uh, or at least it was, the gateway drug uh, for conspiracy theories. I had a conversation a long, long time ago and early, early in the first season, let's call it, of this podcast with a friend of mine who made the interesting point that it was 
primarily a left-wing conspiracy theory. And in fact, all other conspiracy theories th- from Kennedy through Vietnam and, and, and even into the 70s, it was primarily a, a, a liberal kink. Yeah, I mean, it must be like great Derek's think alike, or at least us, because that's also the line I use in my class. The American conspiracy theories really start with that moment. I, I There's some ahead of that, but I mean, be, before that, and the only one I could think of that has any kind of weight to it that people might even still kind of talk about today is whether World War II, as far as America was concerned, was allowed by uh, FDR because he knew that the attack of Pearl Harbor was coming and didn't do anything about it to make it easier for him. I would also say the uh, the McCarthy uh, communist hunts and the, and the blacklist also uh, informed a lot, but I don't know how many people today think about that. Right, because it's such a, a drawn out kind of process. We don't do long-term thinking. I think uh, it, we, we multitask too much for those kind of big clips of history in some cases, I think. So uh, that moment, that event, it's it's been, you know, mythical. Uh, you know, here's something where you get thousands of people right in front of something happening, and yet you still can't get 60 years later now to be settled on as far as how it is that people, you know, agree what actually happened. Right. People who were there can't agree on what happened. Right. And we and we talk about in our class the idea of eyewitness accounts, you know, and how on one hand they're great because that's the only people in a, in the right spot at the exact right time, but also there's a huge difference between what you see and what you think it means. And it's that second one that I think gets us in trouble sometimes. I mean, so Kennedy dies because he was this, hey, maybe he was going to be a great president. But part of it was because he was young and he had this very attractive wife and it was Camelot. That's what everybody called it. It's Camelot. And that already has that mythic quality, you know. And then the people go start thinking, well, what if he was taken out? Mm -hmm. Do you think that this informs the counterculture movement and flower power and all that that comes about when uh, America starts the Vietnam War, which was really a police action. Uh, Do you think that that sort of distrust kind of spiraled into that? I think so. When you look at that time period, even the crises, I think, in America during those 20, 30 years that were, you know, not a direct enemy, uh, a war or something like that. There, there are people who infiltrated our country. So like the communists and stuff like that. And then I think during this like second half of the 60s, you you get folks who are kind of almost saying, well, you know, here's things that people and, and they're, uh, you know, they're as far as I can tell, Americans just like me, they just don't believe in the right things. That's that kind of internal crisis. And I think these the 60s was like almost like a, a crucible to kind of show here's what now our values are being put to a high high temperature and let's see what comes out of this now, you know. And so this this internal kind of crisis, I think that's the time when we're really almost really questioning uh, where do we go from here? And so I agree. I think that is, that is actually a big, a big spot of where we have to like turn the corner as a country. And, and what we don't know what's going to happen, like you said. So by the, like the time, I don't know, maybe like Watergate ends and maybe ends that era of sorts, that, that little time period. Um, there is just everything that is just up, up in the air and up for question. Yeah, it's interesting that the, the, the left really gloms on to this. Well, they're ruthless and you know, they'll, they'll do anything. And, you know, of course, the John Birch Society over on the right 
uh, is rapidly anti-communist. I don't think modern people can really fathom just how freaked out the more conservative-minded people were by communism, especially in the 50s and 60s. Uh, and a lot of it, I think, had to do with, because you always hear it, you atheist, pinko, commie bastard. And the atheist is almost always included in there. I think a lot of it was this idea that these people want to eliminate God from society. And that's a problem for me, let's say, me as a hypothetical person, because I think there should be more God in society. And so now we have, I mean, this is a battle for the soul of humanity. Yeah. And I give my class a reading, uh, Richard Hofstadter. He comes right in the middle of that. And he starts talking about, you know, America now is getting what we, what he called this paranoia style, where you get people who are now, like you said, they're just now worried. And where it used to be, I think, a lot of initial conspiracy theories from that time, really until like probably not even until like five or eight years ago, conspiracy theories come from the basically conservatives who want to try to make sure that traditional values of wherever you are, are going to be still upheld and any threats to that, that's something that's got to be rooted out and, and, you know, taken care of, because if you don't, then we're not going to have the same country that, you know, we, we were living in. And in some ways that's almost like a natural thing, right? It's got to, it's got to happen at some point that those things will tend to change. Um, That was, I think enough people on both sides that the, conservatives really started to worry about where where are we going with this and i think uh well hofstadter it's a dry read but it's also pretty insightful with a lot of the examples like you bring out specifically with the john birch society and groups like that going back to even like freemasons all those things and how these are just threats that need to be exposed for what they were yeah and i think you're right on the money with uh with this idea that the conservatives were very concerned that we're not going to have our country our country's going to go away it's going to change so much i won't recognize it which is exactly what the progressives wanted to have happen because they looked at their country and they they said hey this story we tell ourselves about being the greatest country in the world and you know the most free and all the rest and yet It's not that way for black people, for women, certainly not for anybody who's gay. And we won't even get into the concept of trans people. I believe in the 1960s, homosexuality was still officially classified as a mental illness. There was a fundamental conflict about changing the very structure of uh, social institutions and, and by extension society, because it was kind of, hey, America, you say this, but you do this. You should walk your talk. Right. And here's a question for you off of that, because based in this particular era, uh, we're looking at, like, in mid, mid, late 60s and maybe even early 70s, I always told my class, too, that if you want to kind of know, get a feel for what is kind of going on, follow the media. And in this case, follow, like, the movies, follow the TV shows. And to what extent are these things being explored where people are now allowed to go to a movie theater and watch movies about these kinds of issues. And I think you're finding that there's enough acceptance of at least the question of these things that that they're pretty popular. It's almost like for the conservatives, it started to change so much. And it was exactly, it's almost like a conspiracy theory. Oh my God, look at this. 10 years ago or 15 years ago, Mickey Rooney doing that horrible caricature of, of an Asian person was slap your knee funny and pour me another martini, Marge. And now there are 
white girls with black guys, boys with long hair, people who won't wear shoes, black people on TV, Asian people on TV, Chicanos on TV, we had Chico and the Man. It must have felt to them like, especially if you bought into the conspiracy narrative that the Birchers were pushing, this is all a communist plot to disrupt and destroy the United States. It must have felt like, oh my God, yes, we have to do something. Yeah, I think when you see, uh, like you said, by the mid-70s, mid-late 70s, you start looking at those tropes being used now for, say, homosexual people or people who are accused of that to take the place. So now that, you know, you look at Blacks and um, Hispanics and Asians being now kind of more uh, borderline accepted, acceptable now, you then will get now, well, at least we got the gays, quote unquote, that we can then you know, still treat that way. And they're, and they're held out like almost like a, you know, comedy routine with the same kinds of jokes. It's just now with these people instead, you know, I guess it's layers or, or at least levels of which you are working our way through. But like you said, yeah, that's a major thing because then those groups, I think, don't forget uh, because when we look at our studies, it's pretty clear that race is one of the biggest identities that wind up potentially buying into conspiracy theories because of the past and how they've been treated. So kind of on the ground, mainly for the 60s and 70s, certainly in the media, it would seem as if there's this conspiracy thinking starting with the assassination of John F. Kennedy and then kind of fueled by uh, the way that the police treat Vietnam War protesters, Uh, the police riot at the 1968 Democratic Convention. That same year, Bobby Kennedy killed. uh, Martin Luther King Jr. killed. Kent State. It kind of really messed up a lot of these people's heads who thought, oh my God, we're on the verge of creating a a new society, a society that we think is is fairer and more inclusive and, and will be stronger for it. And during this time, the conservatives are really like, they kind of, the hardline conservatives, they wanted Wallace way back when. And Wallace didn't get in there. And then in 68, Johnson says, I'm not going to run again. And this is when sort of Wallace light, Richard Nixon shows up. And Richard Nixon, we now know, he was been, he's been diagnosed by psychologists who listened to the uh, recordings that were all over the, uh, the White House and the West Wing as a paranoid schizophrenic and an alcoholic who would wander the halls of the White House in his sock feet and talk to the paintings, right? <laughs> so I, I still remember the Saturday Night Live skits right around that time and how funny sometimes they were because I thought, oh, that wasn't really, and then it was the case. So yes. Yeah, it was the case. That's exactly right. So for the conservatives, yay, finally, somebody who who is willing to do the hard thing, who is willing to perhaps break some rules in order to save the nation. And then for the for the liberals, it turns out he's, as, as Hunter S. Thompson put it, so twisted that he had to be screwed into his pants each morning by the Secret Service. How much easier then can conspiracy theories begin to flourish a little bit just because you get those people who say, you know, with almost every ounce of my muscle, I hate you know, Nixon, or I hate the Republicans for what they're doing to this country and the opposite side. So it's almost a way to try to relieve some pressure is to have somebody spin a story 
again, maybe if it's not even true, but in the end, you get your justice because you find out that they're doing you wrong. And in the end, we're going to triumph. And, you know, some of that is probably turning, you know, turned out to be somewhat true when you finally get people who are, you know, not going to jail like Nixon, but essentially almost the equivalent of being kicked out of the, the, the most powerful office in the land. It's, you know, there is that kind of trying to find a way to feel like you have been justified in keeping the beliefs that you do. And that boy, America is still a great country, you know, in the end. And at the end, people say, well, can we just kind of get along and just move on and, and be America again? And then there's almost like that vacuum in a way, you know, none of the huge, big events going on, but there's a, still a lot going on underneath, you know, the surface for, for what comes next. So once Nixon resigns, Ford gets in there. Ford is is uh, mercilessly mocked on Saturday Night Live and other places. And people who knew Jerry Ford said, actually, he was a really nice guy and he was not a hardline Wallace-type guy. Um, but the liberals were like, yeah, but he was on the Warren Commission. So, you know, suspect, suspect. I, I often think that for the bicentennial, for the 1976 presidential election, uh, my joke is that... the. The Democrats could have run uh, an old cheese sandwich and a dill pickle and won because there was no way the country was going to elect a Republican after the Nixon shenanigans. There's just no way. Who is our new Wallace? We thought it would be Nixon. He turned out to be crazy. Who could it be? And, you know, there's Ronald Reagan. I mean, they a lot of people wanted Reagan to run in 76. And the, the Republican leadership said, no, let's give them four years of a Democrat and then we'll destroy them in 1980. And we'll bring, we'll bring in our new Wallace, who's going to be Reagan. And he's the one who's going to fix everything the way that Nixon was supposed to fix everything, but didn't. Yeah. And so when you get Ford, who was, like you said, pretty well mocked, and now you get somebody who's an, an ex-actor, you know, and, and he knows how to play things and he knows how to spin things in a way that makes them, even if it's not a great solution or a great moment, he still comes across pretty well, you know, because of the aw shucks cowboy thing. And, and I think people really kind of respond to that in a way as a reset. I've heard it said that Reagan, or at least some of the people who work for him, basically you could argue that they're the father of the soundbite. Mm, yeah. And he's the guy who created the welfare queen uh, narrative. That was him. It's, it's such a preposterous story on the surface. And yet, I mean, I grew up in California during this time period, and there were people who they would quote this as if it had been like a news story. I mean, isn't that kind of the, the really in many ways the beginnings of what we're seeing today, which is this weaponization of conspiratorial narratives? Yep, absolutely. Uh, in my class, when we take like about a two or three week period and we look at other parts of the world, and they see hopefully that America is, you know, in some ways well behind other countries and being able to weaponize stuff and having an agenda that a conspiracy theory helps to promote with an agenda. At the same time, we're catching up fast if we haven't already. And I think that is honestly part of it. I remember, you know, I would tell my class that if if you were a member of Congress, you would get like a briefing book of different types of ways to handle the media. And you were told back in the 50s, if you couldn't condense your thoughts to within 30 seconds, you run the risk of somebody else taking it and editing it enough to change it so that your thoughts don't get out there. By Reagan, that is that is kind of considered, if you can't do it within 10 to 15 seconds, it's the same. And today they they say, if you don't have one quick sentence, five seconds, you know, that's about it. That's all you get. 
So again, that sets up how conspiracy theories today, they thrive on, say, social media because you can be so quick, you know, one tweet, don't have to go on the alternative arguments or anything, statistics to back you up. You just say what your point is and people will take your word at it, which is kind of a little surprising at this point. But it starts with Reagan, I do. I do think that's a, a critical part where the soundbite becomes that much more important. Now, of course, during this time period, that's what's going on in the political sphere. But of course, we are seeing uh, in the 70s, like I said, Mon Squad and all these other things, all in the family, which was very subversive. But then you also see this rise in sort of the woo world, right? I, I'm thinking specifically of In Search Of, which I loved the show. And every week they would talk about, or every episode they would talk about the Bermuda Triangle or UFOs or this or this. Um, let's not forget, In Search of Noah's Ark was a huge best-selling book and a hugely successful movie. Yep. It, it shows, you know, really one world. And now we start looking at not just global kinds of things, you know, like, like climate and animals and taking care of that stuff, but also like those kinds of, wow, what about if it's stuff that goes beyond that one world and you get those mysteries and folk legends and stuff. It, it's, it's a really interesting time just to be there and, and pick up on all that stuff. Even the movies, E.T., Close Encounters, Star Wars even. You know, there's studies that suggest that when we get into those kinds of open periods where there's almost a vacuum, that's when we do a lot more fantasy in our movies and, and TV shows as a way to explore some of that stuff. And I thought, okay, I buy into that up to a point. But then in the end of that little era, we get movies like Alien and stuff where it's not all that pretty. Which is 1979. Right, exactly. That's interesting. I'd like to see if that plays out in other eras as, as well. But for us, at that point, that seemed to be a pretty neat era to kind of do some exploring of that kind of stuff. And like you said, even when we were doing that stuff with TV and what was kind of still allowed, they were stretching stuff a bit. And I think that was part of how we, we tried to make sense of that. And I think that's where then you, you get more freedom for alternative views, which again leads back to the conspiracy theories. So then all of that, that kind of open-mindedness. And, and then you, of course, are going to have your snake oil salesman. And they're going to come along and go, hey, I happen to live near an area where there are a bunch of quartz crystals. So I'm going to spin a tale that quartz crystals can impart a variety of health benefits, for example, or open portals to other dimensions. So you get this 1980s new age movement. I know we talk in class about the lack of proof, you know, or hard evidence for conspiracy theories or even things like that. And you go, well, you know, we talk about how faith then serves as proof because you just believe you just think in your gut, something just rings true. And that seems like that's a lot somehow not even logical. It just seems like it's right and that it, it fits. And, and when you do that, I think that makes it hard. We call it like falsification where you can't prove something is wrong. But that doesn't mean it's still a good theory just because you can't prove it wrong. I try to tread carefully teaching at Villanova University, which has got a certain a religious philosophy and the idea of ethics and all that stuff. But at the same time, proof and faith and things like religion, how do they differ than the thinking that goes along with conspiracy theories? And we have a pretty interesting hour or so we try to, to try to tease that stuff apart from each other. The more that you commit to the, you know, if you call it acting or whatever, and being louder, 
there's studies that suggest people will accept you as a leader just because you have the audacity to be yelling that loud and therefore you must have something to back it up. I keep thinking of the Christian Bale performance of Batman in the Christopher Nolan movies and he has this really interesting um, technique which I believe has comes from the military and a little bit from from the world of let's call it brainwashing where he's not only freaking out the bad guys by being mysterious and well where where did Joe go and and all this and but when he finally gets a hold of them they're already kind of rattled and then he shouts at them in this loud menacing way tell me where he is they panic it's like it gets down into the lizard brain it's almost like that's that's the technique right and and it's almost like even knowing that that could happen you know one of the conspiracy theories and this and this shows me how america is caught up when you get conspiracy theories about cartoons and sports you know that people really care about as well and so one of these was was just suggesting that you know one of the the bat signal was a huge pr move because it wasn't to you know get batman to show up at the commissioner's office it was to let criminals know that he was being called in and when that was the case that would make them scared right off the start and so it's a huge and really i think effective uh, public relations technique to get you know to get folks all worried So I understand you have kind of a toolkit that you uh, give to your students that sort of allows them to start the process when they encounter a conspiracy theory or a conspiracy narrative, whether it's a full-blown conspiracy theory or it's not. It's just a, a rumor or a lie or what have you, or a meme or a picture even nowadays of, is this even a real picture? You know, the, this, this kind of uh, who the hell knows what's real quote-unquote post-truth, which is a term I hate, world. It's kind of like a a Batman utility belt or a first aid kit for them to uh, start the process of trying to figure out if something is easily dismissed or not. We go through a bunch of stuff, and in the end, I'd like for them to try to come up with their own little kit, like certain tools that they will put into it, although there's a few that I think we stress are like, these are maybe like the very first things you do. And I think maybe that helps them to kind of say, how would I approach a conspiracy theory based on their own kind of biases? Because, you know, I think we all buy into some, or at least we believe enough to look into to it further. And I think that's kind of a good sign. One of the things we talk about is that, you know, um, age and education to wind up being kind of factors that help to determine whether you might be more likely to buy into one. And and their age, they're kind of ground zero in some cases for testing some of this stuff because they're taught to be open-minded. They don't have the wizened, whatever you want to call it, grizzled veteran's face that says, I know the world. You don't have to tell me what the world is about, son. They approach this a little bit more eagerly, which I think is good. And so uh, the first one that I ask them to think about is is something that actually kind of screens whether this is even an actual conspiracy theory versus kind of like a urban legend or even just a plain mystery. And that is who benefits if this is an actual conspiracy theory, who actually benefits from it being spread and accepted? And to me, that takes out some things like Bigfoot. Loch Ness Monster, because these are more like mysteries to me in some cases, rather than conspiracy theories. And even like with the Loch Ness Monster, if you say, oh, okay, it's an innkeeper that's on the shore of Loch Ness, and they kind of say, well, it, it makes my tourism still really consistent and great. 
you know, then I start thinking about all kinds of old Scooby-Doo episodes where, you know, there's a guy in a, in a rubbery Loch Ness monster outfit kind of thing to drum up, you know, tourism and stuff. But I think those are more more harmless as compared to like you have some examples of government where it's a power balance and it's a way to keep people from questioning such and such things. Then then I think, OK, these are not, I think, absolute cut and dry things in some cases, because I think you can always tell stories to try to do this. And that kind of goes to the second one, which is if folks have heard of Occam's razor, the idea that the simpler the explanation, the better. If your conspiracy theory says on the second month and and the third week, if the moon is full, then these things will happen. It it tends to be a lot harder to buy into that because things have to be exactly right for a conspiracy theory to to tend to be valid. And, And a good conspiracy theory by, I guess, our explanation is something that is a simple explanation. There's proof that would be out there to show it. And that's something which I think is kind of important to to note as part of that. So there are exceptions to, I think, the simplest theory is more likely the correct one. But I think at the same time, it also helps to screen some of the ones where you sometimes, like I was saying before, some of the students have their own biases, as do I, where there's stories you'd love to see occur. You know, even some silly ones like right now with Taylor Swift and she's dating a football player that is the arch enemy of one of my favorite teams. And so, you know, you you come up with conspiracy theories like why this woman who is from the Philadelphia area, why would she kind of defect in some ways, people would think. And then there's a conspiracy theory that she's going to string them along and then the right time dump them and make the team suffer as a result. You know, so when you do those kinds of silly things like that, that are just really complicated, they're fun. I'd love for it to happen, but those are not really typically the kind of things that happen in conspiracy theories. It's a more direct line in some way. So that's that's another thing, like how simple the theory is. And then um, another one would be how many people? How many people would it take in order to make this conspiracy theory happen? Hundreds. Uh, right. In some cases, when I look at the moon landing, I see that and you're and you're looking like how can you compartmentalize that when you have thousands of people involved with that? that somehow none of them have come out. Can you imagine the not just the money that would be involved if you had all this information and you were willing to sell that to somebody for a super great book or whatever, but even just why didn't the Russians know, let's say anything? And that's the only thing where I think of where then I, my head starts spinning to, okay, maybe they knew that they had to keep it you know, quiet because they knew that nobody could do it and that would like deflate the earth. So you know, you get all these complex theories again that, yeah, you just can't make something up that's so complex and get people to be quiet about it because, you know, it's a great story. So that's another one. And then the the last one is uh, this idea of falsifiability again. If I could talk to a person who is that conspiracy theorist or buys into it, I would say, what would it take for you to agree that the conspiracy theory you buy into is not true? What would it actually take for you to say, okay, there's the evidence I need to walk away and say, okay, that's that's no longer a valid theory in my head. And it's not what they come up with. It's whether they give you anything. Because I think some people are so sold on it, they will not accept any evidence to disprove what it is that they believe is the absolute truth. So conspiracy theories aren't nothing new. They've been around for a long time, though uh, over the decades, they seem to have uh, obviously changed. New ones come up, old ones kind of die out, though I don't know if conspiracy theories ever really die out. And uh, there are a number of different ways that we can uh, process them 
talk about them, react to them, and even analyze them. My guest today, Mr. Derek Arnold, who is a professor at Villanova University teaching a course in the Rhetorics of Conspiracy Theories, has developed a bit of a toolkit that uh, he works with his students, uh, giving them some tools to be able to analyze a conspiracy theory that they come across. And the first four of the elements of that kit are who benefits from the conspiracy, Occam's razor, which is that the simplest explanation is almost always the correct one, how many people would have to be involved in order for the conspiracy theory to have any merit, and falsification. To a true believer, what would be required in order for you to change your mind about it? And if they tell you nothing, then you've just learned an awful lot about that person. (laughs) Obviously, we could talk about this stuff uh, for days and days and days. While we were talking, I now have notes for one, two, three, four more episodes. (laughs) So, uh, you know, uh, obviously this stuff is interesting. You teach a whole course on it, and I'm sure that by the end of that course, you're like, yeah, we just scratched the surface here. Yes. Every time we do this again, um, this this year, like I was saying, we're talking about memes and we even just bring in stuff like the paranormal, uh, those kinds of things that how do they share some of the same kinds of uh, logic structures or, or fallacies? And, you know, still there are people that believe in ghosts and won't change their mind. And how do you take that and, and equate that to how people would treat conspiracy theories? Yep, that's for sure. And then, of course, there's a whole nother topic of, hey, if somebody wants to believe in ghosts, that's fine. It doesn't really hurt anything. Uh, There is this kind of harmless versus less harmless conspiracy theories, you know. Uh, But again, that's a topic for a whole nother conversation. Uh, I'm jealous of your students. I wish I could take your course. (laughs) Well, being they're getting ready to get ready for their final exams, perhaps they'd be willing to switch with you right now. But otherwise, hopefully they also agree with you as well. (laughs) And of course, thank you everybody out there for listening. I tell you again, this is the 100th episode. Woohoo! Bells, whistles, fireworks, dogs barking, cats meowing. It's, uh, It's been a long, wild, strange ride. And uh, when we're not done, I have a list of future episodes that um, until I finally just burn out, uh, we have uh, more years ahead of us. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening. Thank you.